0: Welcome to Being Invested with me, Susanna Nicklin. This is the podcast where we explore investing from the inside. I'm not talking about insider information, but the personal stories of the people who make the markets. I've always been fascinated by how skilled investors have become who they are, how they've ridden the roller coasters, and what it means to them. I'll introduce you to innovators and leaders in all types of assets and markets, from blue chip stocks to venture capital, from timber to crypto, from violins to power plants. I've been an investor and worked in the international capital markets for my whole career. I've had a front row view of the women and men who move money to shape our world, and I've always been interested in who they are as human beings, the choices they've made, the qualities that make them good at what they do, and how they deal with setbacks. This is not a podcast about where to invest your money. It's a podcast for people who want to understand and thrive in the financial services industry. For those of you just thinking about entering it, for anyone a bit stuck in one corner and ready for a change, and for those of you who are just plain curious about who the people are behind the world's financial markets, you'll get to hear how investors have built and are building their careers and their businesses and learn from them to invest for the outcomes you desire and how to respond when the price tanks. The mindset of being invested can enrich and elevate your journey, and I'd love to encourage more people into the sector who may not have considered it before. Please join me for riveting conversations and new insights into the careers, life hacks, and hard-won life lessons of investors across the globe. My guest today is Jerry Bakes, the founder and CEO of NCL, a specialist UK investment management firm focusing on high-growth and pioneering healthcare companies based in London. But Jerry was not always an investor, and his journey to running an asset management business followed a non-traditional route. When he was in primary school, Jerry's head teacher presciently noted his playground leadership skills. It was evident even then that Jerry had the ability to read situations, communicate well, and motivate groups of people. These strengths were tested, expanded, and taken to entirely new levels when Jerry joined the British Army out of school, ultimately serving as an infantry officer and seeing active service in the Balkans, the Middle East, and Northern Ireland. After that, Jerry worked for Northern Trust Global Investments, HSBC Investment Bank and Bank of Scotland Investments, and he was also the investment director for a UK-based family office. Jerry founded NCL in 2015 to capture the opportunity he saw rising from the technological evolution of global healthcare. The core belief behind NCL's strategies is that the modernization of healthcare will be one of the greatest growth drivers of the 21st century. NCL invests in companies at the forefront of transformational change in seed and series A rounds, where they deploy their expertise and capital to back entrepreneurs who are actively using innovation and technological advancement to help prevent, treat and cure a wide range of conditions. In addition to running NCL, Jerry sits on the board of a number of high growth businesses. In our absorbing conversation, We talk about how he moved from the military into investing, and he shares the powerful lessons he learned on the front lines that continue to guide his work and thinking today. I always really enjoy speaking with Jerry. He has such genuine enthusiasm for what he does, combined with clear systemic thinking, unflappable resilience, humility, and humor. Jerry, welcome, and thank you for coming on the podcast as one of my early guests.
1: Susanna, thank you very much for having me. I look forward to speaking to you.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you here. I know listeners are are going to hugely benefit from hearing your perspectives, and I'm personally really looking forward to the conversation. So let's start with your journey as an investor. As I said, you're now one of the UK's most experienced healthcare investors, and you have a fascinating personal history and career, starting in in Maybe one of a place that's a little bit less common as a as a, a sandbox or starting ground. Starting in the military, it would be great to hear how you've moved from that to becoming an investor and what pivotal decisions were in that trajectory for you.
1: Uh, yeah, I had a bit of a different sort of uh, uh, upbringing to, to to a typical investment manager, I suppose. And I, I, if I start way back at school. I, I never really enjoyed school at all, and uh, uh, and I didn't get on particularly well. But I did have one quality that I think my headmaster pulled out about me. And I was reading an early report out to my children the other day, and it said Biggs has a uh, a clear ability for playground leadership, but it's not a natural passer of exams. And I think that really, I think that really sort of set the the, the precedent for me to go forward at the end of my school career and join the army. And I think they saw that that that, that I did have clear leadership skills there. Um, I went for a selection test to be an army officer at the age of 19, so quite early. Um, And I passed through, and they said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I'm going to go to university. And they said, well, you've got a place to go to Santa's on Monday. So I I didn't go to university. I went straight into uh, army officer training uh, and had a fantastic 10 years in the military. So it did sort of give me a little bit of a a different background to to, to starting in life. and uh, after about after after ten years in in the military, I uh, I decided that uh, I needed to, to to go and get a proper job, uh, and um, and the timing was right. I I'd, I'd had some really uh, good active service. I was starting to move into a position where I was uh, going to be pushing a, a pen instead of picking up a rifle uh, for the next foreseeable few years. So I thought now's the time to get out and uh, and start to have a real career change. And I suppose I I did that by looking at my peer group and thinking, well, where have all my friends gone into, and what have they managed to achieve after sort of ten long years in the army? Some of them went to be teachers, and I think they did incredibly well. Some of them went to be recruitment consultants, and then the others seemed to end up in the city. I did give a uh, I did try my hand at a, a recruitment very briefly, and found I didn't like it at all. I could never really see myself going back to school, saying how much I hated it. So my only real option was to was to go towards the city and uh try and forge a new career path there. But I've got to say at the time, Susanna, I knew nothing about uh how money worked at all. So I think that was really my first thing was to, to find out, you know, where where I would be and and uh and what I could I could turn my hand to
0: how did that feel, Jerry, being a beginner, if you will, again, you know, going from a 10 years of, of obviously intense training and, and expertise and leadership to, to suddenly being, you know, sort of at the start of something?
1: The Army is very good at making you a confident individual. But I've got to say, this was one part of my life when I really felt um, quite vulnerable. 10 years, you're, you're, you know, you do a lot of things, but you're quite closeted from the real world. And I can remember I, I was given sort of seven months gardening leave at the end of end of it. I did a couple of courses, but at the end of the, the the day, when my final paycheck arrived, I sat down my on my sofa and I thought, Oh my God, I haven't got a job. What the heck am I going to do? And uh, and it really sort of motivated me to think well, I've got to go and have a look. And I remember the last thing that 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 my uh, my commanding officer said to me at the time was you're never going to get a job outside and when you do get a job outside if you go to the city you'll be sacked within three months how are you going to cope with that i thought well that's 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 a great way to start a new career and unfortunately he was right i i got my first job after applying to lots of them um uh, through, through through a friend of mine and and i went to work for ubs and so after sort of two months worth of selection for, for the job i turned up on the monday morning um, to be told, wait at reception. Your your line manager's coming down. And um, my line manager came down holding a brown box, and the whole team had been made redundant. So even before I started, I've been made been made redundant in my first job. So it wasn't really uh, a good a good uh, uh, introduction to the city.
0: Or maybe maybe a, a good way to get that one out of the way, um, so you can get on yes. to some other things.
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that must
0: have been a real shock, though. So, how did you it, pick yourself up from that?
1: It, it was well. I, I, um, uh, well, I, I, at the time, it was two thousand and three. So, we were all in a in a bit of a recession. Uh, I, I wrote to lots of different people, and I really increased my network. Uh, went out for lots of lunches, met people, tried, tried to 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 gain connections all through the financial industry. And I eventually got a job uh, working for a new new department that was set up called the Bank of Scotland Investment Service. And this was a, it it was like an independent financial advisor that was selling pension products, investment products to quite a high net worth um, audience that that they had. And so really that was my first job cutting my teeth in a financial services firm. And I think it was a brilliant training ground. They they had a, a they had a a training program that was set up over the course of eight months where you you went to learn how to sell products, and then you'd go and try it on the street, and then you come back in and they teach you some more. And I've got to say, it 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 really gave me well, one a, a a thirst for being able to sell financial products, and and to a really good grounding and understanding of of how to sell. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned. And has seen me well during my my uh, my second part of my career in the city.
0: Tell us a little bit about what were the sort of key lessons or or changes in how you operated from being a a leader of people on the battlefield to to actually persuading people um, or selling financial products. What clicked or or what habits or changes in how you thought about things or, or relationships were really different
1: different there isn't a lot of difference. It's really about how you shape that. And I think, you know, actually as a as a leader on the on the battlefield or in charge of in charge of a group of soldiers, you you really have to sell yourself all the time. They are incredibly demanding, rightly so, and they will ask the best of you. And you have to lead from the front. You you show them the way to go and you have to inspire them and you have to gain their trust. So selling yourself constantly and selling your plans and what you've got to do and why they've got to do it is an integral part of being an army officer. So I think I already had the sort of people side of life fairly mm-hmm. nailed down. What I didn't know was how to convince them to buy a financial product, and I think that's really what the the the, the, the city training gave me was was how do you, how can you um, convince someone to take your product over something else? The drivers for you know people wanting to to buy a financial product, which 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 is a very com- well a very complex sell, and obviously something that you know not many people are uh, are wanting to do.
0: That's a really interesting point. So, yeah. but catalyzed that for you, and and where did you take that from there?
1: Well, uh, so I, I I spent a couple of years in my my first role. Um, I then w- what I what I realized is is that in the military I had really benefited from being able to learn the complete value chain of the business you know how things get towards the front line how how uh, how battles are, are won not just by the guys at the front end but by all the logistics chain and i realized that in the city i was at the front end of being able to sell financial products to people but i really don't, didn't understand how those products were made how they were were, were pulled together uh, how they were processed so when I went to, to ask a, quite a few people in different parts of it, none of them could explain to me end-to-end how the financial system worked. So I thought, why well, I'm going to go and find out for myself. And luckily, I came across a, a, someone who's now a very good friend of mine who had started a consultancy business that was giving consulting advice to um, large investment management and asset management firms. And we had a, a chat over a coffee and he said, would you come and work for me? and I said I can bring nothing to you at all I don't know the asset management business whatsoever he said no but you know how to de- deliver things on time and on budget which is you know what we really struggle with in the city um so I did and in in return for sort of giving him two years of hard work he taught me everything I needed to know about the the sort of entire value chain of the uh, of the financial services industry and and that has really stood me in good stead then to say what do I want to do um, and and uh, and take myself forward. So from then on, I decided I wanted to be um, in front office uh, in the asset management uh, part. Um, I went on to work for HSBC for for a short while, um, and then I um, I got a job with uh, an American bank, Northern Trust, on a um, global investment team, where we really we were bringing some of the product in the early stages over from the US to the UK market.
0: Fascinating, because. It's a really good point you make that so many people in the financial services industry work in silos and see their functional area and know that well, but the end-to-end complete value chain that you described... Uh, gave you a really interesting, I mean, understanding that from the military and then understanding the value that you would have, the greater sense of purpose, I guess, and also how you could lead people only by understanding really the whole value chain is is a really um, powerful observation. seems like it's transformed your career as well. Um, I think that's right. I
1: I think it really is. There aren't many people who know the rest of the world in the city outside of their job. And, um, you know, I've, I've ended up giving sort of lectures and written um, papers about it on on, a, on the, the need to know, you know, the sort of front to back and how that all fits together. Otherwise, you do become incredibly siloed and it does become so, you know, you go into work, you, you do your job, you go home, but you never understand what the rest of the business does.
0: And so let's move to the sort of how you've shaped that into the next stage of your career, which is is quite entrepreneurial. So not just even um, consulting on how to do it, but actually building your own business. Um, yeah. And perhaps you could tell, tell um, for listeners who might not be as familiar with NCL, a little bit about what the essence of your investment strategy is and, and sort of why that came about.
1: We were uh, well. Well, I suppose I was working at, a, a, at an American bank. Um, as Lehman's happened. It, there was a, a lot of fallout, obviously, going on throughout the city at the time. Um, one of my old bosses came to me and said, "Look, um, you know, why don't you go and start something new, and I'll, I'll give you some backing, and you can go and do it." I didn't really know what to do at the, the, the time, so um, he came to me and said, "Well, actually, I'm going to start a family office. Will you come and come and run it for me?" Uh, so I spent the next sort of three or four years setting up a a, a uk based family office for, for for this individual, and we we sort of put all the investment process in place. um we brought a few other um, families along with us so it so this was sort of a multi-family office, although quite small, but we put all the investment process in place um and then we uh, ended up making quite a few direct investments which I'd never really been involved with before. so purchasing um at the time a lot of energy assets and farming assets. And that was a real experience for me, and and I I almost got hooked on being a deal junkie, and I think that's really what took me towards the, the start of wanting to become a venture capital investor. So a couple of years later, uh, I, uh, uh, I I got an opportunity to to start my own business, and I was very lucky that uh, the individual that I was working for at the time um, one would let me go, um, but also backed me to to start NCL um, Investment Management. And so, ten years ago, or well, actually, twelve years ago now, um, NCL was born, and ever since we've been uh, managing funds um, in the venture capital industry.
0: So it's a great story of, of of kind of taking opportunities as they emerge and bringing this deliver things on time and on budget to a range of really different challenges. By the sound of it, and ones that
1: yeah.
0: often, when you got into them, you really didn't know much about them, but the power of the organization and discipline that you would bring to the challenge was what you were able to use to to learn and to then grow something and build something is that is that right
1: i think that's absolutely right yeah i, I think you know my skills was being able to sort of help manage and uh, and and control certain parts of the businesses but in in return i could get on and really learn and I did. You know, I, I I learned a lot, and I I took quite a few exams in the, in the financial industry. Um, but I really spent that time learning all about the process and the job and what was entailed in that job. So, yeah, I, I grow growing into my skill set over the sort of over a ten year period, I would say.
0: Was that mostly done just in practice, or do you do did you use mentors or books or philosophies?
1: Yeah. Well, I yeah, I mean, I think you know, obviously you have to take them. Practical exams along the way, which I which I did do, but I I really did look towards mentors. My my old boss that helped set me up in this business, he was a great mentor to me. Really, a really good entrepreneur, uh, a really good deal maker, and he also knew the financial services industry incredibly well. Uh, he he really got me interested and and, uh, and got me excited about deal making and venture capital in particular and 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 how to how to put good quality deals together and I think he probably you know taught me a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the the qualities of of what to look for as well so mentorship is 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 absolutely key particularly in the financial services it is such a hard hard sector to navigate into and then i did also along the way read a lot of books that was you know uh, mainly biographies but of, of people that would uh, are either been there, seen it and done it or could have some more experience to me along the way
0: going back to the quality that you said um, you described yourself as becoming a bit of a deal junkie and i'm interested in what has driven you over the course of your career you know as you've as you've made these choices from one organization to another from uh, and drawing different things from different mentors what about being a deal junkie was motivating um, and have those motivations shifted as you as you have developed your skill set and as you've developed and built your own business?
1: Well, the, the, the transition at a strategic level is 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 quite interesting. You know, if, if we take that look back to the military career, a lot of people will look at the military and think, well, it's you know incredibly bureaucratic, you follow the rules, you don't have much say in anything. That is true to a fair extent. The military is incredibly bureaucratic, but it also gives you a very big rope to hang yourself. And that rope comes around very quickly. So you know, you're yes, you're taught all the all the skills, you're in a very confined system, but you're given opportunities there, which you would never normally be given in any other walk of life for large areas of command, for um to take over in different practices where there is no rule book. And no one has done things before. And you very quickly have to pick up the reins and run with it. So I think for an army officer in particular, you actually do have a lot of entrepreneurial skills that the army has taught you to how to get on and do it and make it up on your own and make it up as you go along as well. When I came out into the city, I thought that that had been really curtailed. I felt that there were some very good managers, but there weren't very many good leaders. And there wasn't an opportunity really to, to put a lot of that skill to work within a large asset management firm. So I was almost yearning to find something where I could express myself and take under my own control and develop my own thing. And so when the opportunity really did come to start up my own business, it was the first time ever I felt that I was free and back in control. And you know, success was now up to me, not up to someone else. So that's really how I transitioned into thinking, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to run my own business.
0: Really interesting. So that success success being down to you and and being really very accountable for the outcomes, it sounds like it's an important thing for you.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And that's the theme that runs through even today is, um, you know, is being able to control my own destiny um i think i've always been a bit of a free spirit really but uh, uh, but to be able to control my own destiny um and you know also you know living and dying by your own failure uh, success or failure is 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 really important that's what motivates me to get up
0: so that's a very sort of um high level description of 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 how of what animates you daily um, maybe we can bring it back down to sort of the day to day um in terms of what habits or ways of thinking inform your or behaviors inform the work you're doing now as you're identifying companies to invest in or working with investee companies to help them succeed you know what are what are some of the um particular behaviors or or rules or decision making strategies that you you recruit and deploy um in in the work you're doing now
1: yeah well i think the 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 critical thing is is there is the team. I I wouldn't class myself as a as a, 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 a very good investor, um, and but I know my weaknesses. And what I try to do is build a team around me that can give me the best advice to make the right decisions. And uh, you know I'm I'm blessed with a with a with a small but very capable team, um, a very capable CIO. So really, what what I've done is put the governance process in place to stop me making decisions on my own and to uh, uh, enable us to really shape propositions together, really evaluate them together as a team, and make joint decisions. and And my biggest thing is to be able to empower other people. and you know w- winning trust and and being able to see others really rise up and 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 make decisions that are far better than I can make has it really gives me some 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 quite good joy that we're we're building a business for the future.
0: Well, it sounds like a lot of humility in there as well, Jerry. Um, you know, that recognition of of what your assets and strengths are and, and then re- you know, really building a team to have diverse skills that you rely on. Very much so. And are there uh any individuals or events in particular that have shaped your skill and approach as an investor? I, I know you just very um uh, humbly said you don't consider yourself a very good investor. Um, but you mentioned one individual earlier that you said you thought was a very good investor and taught you a lot. And I, I know from the results that you've delivered and, and my own conversations with you that you are a very skilled investor. But um, maybe what what individuals or events have particularly trained you in your investment judgments?
1: You can do all the exams, you can read all the books, but there's it's experience, particularly in venture capital, it's experience that that really counts. I probably came into my first deals with my eyes wide open, but I had a very different philosophy. I thought that if you had a very good product, um, you had a very good technology, you need a little bit of money and a bit of help along the way, but that that would make a a, a very good good business. I was wrong. You know, it, it is people all the time you've got to have the team. The team has got to be um, at the forefront. So how I've changed over time is to really look at the individual who's running that business and look at the team he's building up and making sure that they have all the capabilities and their qualities to be able to lead that that team forward and deliver the business. And then secondly, has it good a got has it got a good product or technology that stands behind it? But what's absolutely first and foremost is is the the leadership and the, and the team underneath it.
0: It's a fiendishly big, difficult thing to assess and evaluate. Do you have any techniques or or ways of of measuring that or evaluating that when you're going into a team you don't know beforehand?
1: Yeah, if you like the sound of a proposition. We'll obviously do a little bit of, of due diligence on, uh, uh, you know, find out people who've known them, what they've been like. We'll definitely speak to clients or uh, or third-party suppliers to to work out how they they've behaved uh, and uh, you know whether they've got good integrity and, and things. So so you can build up quite a good picture like that. But we we do try to get them know our, to know them ourselves. Where uh, invariably, a company will come in and and say that it's got you know it's going to take this money and over the next little while it's going to reach a load of milestones. And actually being able to watch them in practice for a little while through some of the good times and some of the more stressful periods really tells you a lot about how that binge individual is going to react. Because even when they get the investment round closed, they're going to come through difficult periods and difficult times. So we do watch them for a period, want to see, are they motivated? Can they really hit those milestones? Um, are the milestones they set you know, legitimate and and, and achievable? How do they react when when you know the pressure's on, uh, and can they deal with that? Because it's something that will come again. So there's a lot of sort of work that we'll do as a team to watch and try to witness different behaviours. But then also we try to get them to know them on an individual level, and, and either myself or one of the other directors will over time make quite close contact. You know, we'll spend spend a couple of days with the business normally with the, with the CEO or the other, other members of the team, um, we'll very go out, go out to lunches to get to know them a bit better and almost have a sort of bonding experience on an informal level before we go forward with a, with the final investment. I think it's just absolutely critical because it's the people that make the business. So therefore you have to know that the people you're dealing with are reliable, trustworthy, and are capable of delivery.
0: Once you're invested, is there, what is the way you, on an ongoing basis, help your senior execs continue to evolve or or grow or target new skills?
1: It's a continuing, it's quite an onerous engagement as well. And I think that's something of the stage of investment that our business is is at. We are fairly early stage venture capital at the moment in time and companies that need the money also need experience and, and help. And that's what we can we can bring in and i think a lot of bcs do say that we definitely have to do it we normally a lot of our ceos from our portfolio companies are young um uh, normally from a science or an engineering uh, or technology type background. they haven't been ceos before they've never taken a company through investment rounds they've never been able to sell or take it through to ipo so there's a lot of experience that that they that they need and our team Looks to fill that, and uh, you know you you can almost map it out when you see them of how much effort you're going to have to put in. And we do see periods of spikes. So normally, as soon as the investment round completes, there's quite an intense period of getting them set up and on the right course. Then they'll go for a year or so on their own way, and then they'll be back, and then you'll be helping them out when they're when they're preparing for the next investment round. But it is real. It's a nice opportunity in some ways to roll your shirt sleeves up. Uh, and get amongst the business and really help them. But but we do put a lot of effort in. And that's why we probably got a smaller portfolio. We're only 23 companies in total. But we put the effort in with those CEOs, with the teams, to make sure that they are, uh, they're firing on all four cylinders.
0: Related to that is risk and how you manage risk, both in the initial deal and then an ongoing portfolio management. I mean, risk is obviously the, the great art of, of investing, is how you look at and assess risk versus return. How do you in the and VC is notorious, you know? Obviously, we have um many examples of both huge returns and, and many. Um, inevitable losses, um, and that's actually just the nature of the game in VC. How how do you explain that to someone who maybe isn't a VC investor? Uh, because it takes a certain comfort with with wearing a full metal jacket, perhaps. Yeah. In in that market, how do you how have you felt you've grown to uh, assess and then actually live with that level of risk?
1: Yeah, I you know I think when you when you set out as a uh, as a business and you think well where is our client base going to be and what level of risk appetite will they have and and what do i got to do to make sure that their money is protected we we looked at where we think we could really add value as a as an investor and a lot of the other vcs that we were working with at the time were eis or tax driven and i think they have a very different sort of risk parameter because of the tax incentives there weren't very many institutional purely performance driven VCs when we set up and we said well, well we we're going to do that but when we spoke to the investor base and we said well you know how much risk can we take within the portfolio what what's your appetite for risk it was very low and so we did a lot of work around well what sort of returns are uh, are there are we are we looking for are we looking for you know the the one or two unicorns and and to to suffer quite a lot of failures or do you want a much more balanced portfolio where we can lessen the risk, but we might not have you know, so many high-performing elements within the in the portfolio, and, and that's certainly where where they wanted to to end up was lower risk, lower return, but a well-balanced, well-diversified portfolio where there weren't too many uh, too many bad news stories, and I think that's exactly what we've we've achieved. You know, over a over almost sort of you know eight eight years of of investing our funds at the moment, we've only had two failures. Uh, along the way and uh, you know both of those were down to probably not having the right team in team in place all of the others are are doing relatively well some are some are outperforming some some are, are moving at a a, at a bit of a slower pace but all in all it's a very well risk balanced portfolio but at the same time it, it hasn't got companies in there which are probably the next you know global unicorns
0: So it sounds like actually that portfolio approach has been much more of a high quality bar and smaller numbers and maybe the the size being more boutique, more focused, more sectorally experienced and targeted has also de-risked that. Is that part of the approach?
1: Very much, Susanna. And I think you know, for for us, we were taking a lot of risk. Yeah, we were uh, as far as the investors concerned. As a, as a new business, we were a first-time manager. We were in a an emerging sector which hadn't done particularly well in the past. You know, ten years ago, healthcare wasn't doing very well, and uh, and it's still fraught with risk these days as it's changing quite dynamically at the moment in time. So there's a lot of risk just in the sector that we were in. So the companies you had to look for had to be well run high quality and could stand a chance of showing that there was that there was life in the sector um, and you know we, we we've really benefited out because we 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 were at the forefront we're starting now to to show that there's a um there is great value in the sector that's coming along and i think over the next 10 years there'll be even greater value and uh hopefully we can continue on in in the same light it's
0: really interesting, Jerry, it comes right back to the beginning with your comment about the importance and significance of understanding the value chain, the the whole ecosystem yeah. of a sector. And it sounds like you're... Uh, you know, sort of military experience of understanding from the you know back back office right through to the front line, and similarly, your approach to learning financial services is now being brought to bear here in the healthcare sector. And being able to see how each piece of the puzzle in the healthcare sector um, relates allows you to identify opportunities where there are gaps, or where there are interesting business models, or where there is money to be made, or technology that could change things.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right, Susanna. You know, it's taken a good sort of almost six, seven years now to, to 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 learn that. But, like I said, the healthcare sector is is incredibly complex. Even in the in the UK, you don't you don't sell to the NHS. You sell to a you know one hundred and fifty separate trusts. It's fraught with difficulties. It's fraught with procurement problems. But there is a there is a big prize at the end. And for companies that can can successfully navigate that, there's a couple of things. First of all, we can really The industry is desperately needing new innovation to help efficiency, but also patients, I think, probably due to COVID, are realizing that there are other solutions there that haven't been brought to bear. And a lot of the companies in our portfolio are now really seeing light of day just because the world has changed.
0: And sticking with this sort of granular for a little bit, you know, you've had eight years of investing now and it's sort of evolving the strategy, but along the way, investing is full of uncertainties and unpredictable outcomes. Maybe you could share with us sort of your best investment that you can talk about candidly and also the worst one or the, or the one that was most painful and, and challenging for you.
1: I'm going. I hope that my best investment is is still maturing at the moment in time. And uh, uh, there's a company I'm uh, uh, well. I think it's a team we're we're deeply proud of, and uh, it's, it's called Cure Response. It is a what we would class as a precision um, oncology platform. Uh, in that, in a nutshell, what it does is it's able to take a biopsy from a a living biopsy from a, a patient and it's able to keep that alive long enough to trial different drugs on it and to see which drugs are likely to work for that patient now normally tumors when they're out of their microenvironment die very quickly and um, so it, it's you know oncologists are un, un, unable to test the drugs because the drugs normally takes sort of, 10 to 14 days to start to have, have a reaction so cure response is able to keep the tumor alive in its microenvironment test the drugs and give a likelihood of success to that that individual of what drug will work. The results have been absolutely um, amazing. They're treating; they've been treating patients out in Israel for uh, for the last year and a half. On the back of that, uh, when we got involved, we set up a UK headquarters and we've en- enrolled them into a trial with Royal Marsden um, and Imperial College. 200 and, uh, 250 patient study is now going on across London, treating patients. Um, with all different types of cancers. And as a result of that, uh, the company will be expanding into the US next year to do much the same. So I think you know it's already proving to, to save patients' lives. It's it's showing its value. Um, it's creating a massive efficiency within the, within the healthcare system. And it's attracted some very large investors alongside us. And I, I'm hoping that given another four or five years, within the sort of asset class that it is there and amongst its peers, it will go on to achieve great results for our investor base.
0: That sounds like a very, very important uh, innovation for all of us. Uh, knowing how how widespread cancer is, and and the personalization of medicine sounds like it could bring some really radical and transformative benefits for this for all of us in the future. So, uh, really interesting. And and how about one that that maybe. Has has caused you a little bit more sleepless nights, or or has required some of your you know battlefield metal along the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yeah. so, right. No names, no pack drill, but uh, yeah, there's certainly one or two. And Susanna, everything comes back to those lessons learned. People, people, people. And I think the trouble that we have with the the leadership in our own type of portfolio companies. As I said already, they're, they're inherently scientists, technologists, they don't necessarily have the business acumen on their own, but sometimes they are so wedded to their idea that they don't have the flexibility to step back and realize that we've, you know, we're trying to build a business. That can create, can create great complexities. Uh, and we do have a, a company where we believe that the, the product is, is groundbreaking. We know that clients want it. Uh, The the CEO of the business at the time was was directly aligned to where all the investors wanted to go, but the CEO wasn't the natural founder and the founder of the business owned a few more of the shares. And that caused uh, uh, a little bit of disruption. The CEO left, the founder took over and really went back to his scientific roots. And for the life of us, we were unable to fulfill the commercial ambitions of the company and it's proving incredibly difficult because you know all right it's it's achieving some good scientific objectives but it's not getting the commercial traction that's required and as a result it doesn't get the investment that it's it's needed on our next stage so something will have to change and we just have to make sure that we we try to work with the new ceo as long as possible to make sure we can actually get the company to survive and and hopefully thrive but it's very challenging and i do see that is a is a constant Risk within the business that the scientific people are more towards the science rather than the commerciality, and that's the, uh, the the struggle we we do seem to have.
0: We don't have very much more time, but we've covered a lot of ground. Really, really interesting, and just reflecting on the qualities of being an investor and how it how it feels uh, and what the the personal qualities required are. Be really curious to know. Maybe social media factors into this. If you see the the what it takes to be a good investor now, and if that's different from what it was when you entered the business, um, and, and if you see that changing going forward,
1: I mean, I, I think there are uh, I think there are, are, are a few qualities that I don't think they change over time. I think w- we need to embrace those qualities more, uh, and that that may be the the, the problem that, that that we have. Yeah, you know, and and as I was alluding to. Early well, I think our industry really needs a bit of a shakeup at the moment in time, and we need to really win back investor confidence. With a few of the, the events that have happened, the biggest thing you need in the in investment management world is integrity. And if you haven't got integrity, you, it will either cause trouble at your firm or it'll cause trouble with your investors, and you won't be around for very long. And I think that's really what's happening. People are. There's been a certain lack of integrity, a certain amount of greed. You know, we we want to be a a long term firm, and and to to do that, you have to be open with your investors. You have to be honest. You have to be able to tell them the bad news as well as the good. You have to be very good at communicating and make sure you you're updating people all the time, whether it's your portfolio companies or the or the investors. You've got to have that level of integrity where people, after a while, can really trust you and they know you they won't that you won't do anything foolish or. Uh, or, or or against them. Whilst I think there are many other qualities that you need, I think uh, I- integrity is the is the main thing, Susanna.
0: Thanks, Jerry. And if you're giving advice to a, a someone wanting to go into the investment profession, is there any sector or asset class or geography that you, if you were going to be in their shoes, would 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 aim for at this stage?
1: Well, I'd naturally say health technology, because, because I really do think over the next ten years, you know, we are we've got a very bright future ahead of us. We can see the asset classes starting to take off. You've got to hold your nerve for a little bit and ride the storm. But I think you know over the next few years we will uh, start to see a, a, a really buoyant sector. Uh, but I, I think it is it's for it's for the individual. You've got to go to somewhere where you have an absolute interest and you feel you can add value. So if if you've got an interest in, in, in healthcare, if you've got an interest in uh, in venture capital, then certainly, you know, this, this is a good sector to go to. If you're a bit undecided, but you just want the venture capital industry, try to find a, a more generic routine, which will give you exposure to the different sectors and you make up your own mind as they come along. But I, I think, you know, that it's, I think there's going to be a lot of change, but I also think that um, the venture industry will be very buoyant over the next few years.
0: Well, hopefully the best and the brightest listening to this podcast will be to march to your door and see how grow successfully. Um, We're going to finish up now, Jerry, with just three quick fire questions. Um, The first meaning being, what is the most influential book or author for your own investing career or your success?
1: I think one of the really good books on venture that I I, I really inspired me was a book called E-Boys by um, Randall Stroth. Which really uh, was about the uh, uh, the making of benchmark and all of their famous investments from eBay through to Webvan and 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 you know billions of other startups <laughs> that they had. Um, it's a really good book on you know how things go right, how things go very wrong, and keeping the courage of your conviction. So I I would highly recommend that to anyone coming in and thinking uh, they want to be in a venture capital industry.
0: Excellent, it's one I haven't read, so I'm going to put that on my list. Thank you for that. And what's your approach to tipping? Are you a big tipper, or a cautious tipper? I'm always interested to know, coming from America to other countries, how people view tipping.
1: Well, how I view it and what I do are probably two different things. So how I view it is that I believe you tip good service. Right? So I don't like being sort of pressurized into, well, if it's a tip on there, and you pay it anyway. Um, unfortunately, I'm British. So if someone says that's a service, I pay it without any question at all. So, yeah, that's my view.
0: <laughs> and can you share if you have a, a, the best recent meal you've had and what was great about it?
1: Oh, that's difficult. Can I diversify? Because I, 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 I love my food, so every meal's good. But my daughter makes the best cakes ever, and I could eat her cakes all day long.
0: Oh, that sounds like you are, are very lucky indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <to have> that <laughs> <laughs> Bye. That's fantastic. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Jerry been an absolute pleasure. And and I think we've covered some really useful and and fascinating ground that that. that hopefully others will will enjoy as well. So um, look forward to to carrying the conversation on another time.
1: Thank you. Take care.
0: Thanks for joining me for this episode of Being Invested. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If so, please subscribe and tell your friends. Also, if you know someone in the financial markets who would make a great guest on the podcast, please message me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Alexander Russell. Our art designer is Sophie Hardy, and this fabulous catchy tune is from Tom McKeon. Thanks, folks, and see you next time.